good to see everyone here this morning. And um, I want us to uh, turn to Genesis chapter 3 as we continue our journey, verse by verse, chronological, or not chronological, seeing and savoring, verse by verse, it is chronological as well, verse by verse journey through um, Genesis. This is our uh, series that we've entitled Foundations. And so if you would please open up your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 through 24. Deemer launched us into this sermon series a few weeks back. And um, when he did, he reminded us of a couple of very basic principles of uh, hermeneutics, of biblical interpretation. He reminded us that we must always remember who the original audience of the book was. And he reminded us that we must understand the historical context of the book. And by doing so, we'll be able to better discern the authorial intent. So I'll remind you that the first audience of the book of Genesis uh, is that the first audience that Moses is writing to here are the people of Israel who have just been freed from slavery in Egypt. And the historical context is that they were now on their way to the promised land. And at least part of Moses' intent, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was to help Israel see and savor who their God was. Who this God was that had delivered them from Egypt. In Egypt they had worshipped false gods. And now Yahweh, the one true God, was showing his superior power and his glory. And he had graciously delivered them from the false power of the false gods of Egypt. And so now, as I said, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses is showing them in Genesis who this God really is. So thus far in the first chapter of Genesis, in the creation account, we saw God's nature, his character on clear display. In the second chapter, we saw God's purpose in creating man, which was namely to bear his image and thus spread his glory around the world. And we saw that God placed man as sort of a a mini king or a vice regent over the earth to subdue it, to keep it, to cultivate it. And after doing so, God entered into a binding covenant with man which included blessings for the man if he obeyed God's one law that he gave to Adam. And then we saw because man is created in the image of God, the man was created for community as a reflection of the triune nature of God. We're made for community. So God gave Adam a wife and he created the covenant of marriage. And everything was very good. But it wasn't long before man fell into sin. The serpent deceived Eve and she ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and gave some to Adam who was passively standing right there with her. And thus Adam broke God's covenant. And last week we saw the devastating effects of man's fall into sin. His relationship with God, his relationship with other mankind, with the rest of mankind, and even his relationship with nature was ruined. And we saw that God, being a God of of love and justice had to judge sin, and thus he brought a judicial sentence upon the man and the woman. The woman would have much pain in childbearing, and her relationship with Adam changed from one where she lovingly submitted to him, and he sacrificially led her, to one where she would begin to willfully manipulate him, and he would begin to sinfully dominate her. And in the curse that God pronounced on Adam, we saw that the ground, which once was easy to work and a joy to cultivate, was cursed, and now work became difficult. It became toil. It became painful. Nature itself was now cursed 
in man's curse. No longer was everything good. As sad as the consequences of sin were and are, there was much grace in last week's text. In last week's passage, we saw a lot of aspects of God being gracious to Adam and Eve, but none more so than what he said in the middle of his pronouncement of judgment upon the serpent. In the serpent's curse, we find hope. God actually brings the hope of salvation for mankind through his judgment on the serpent, on Satan. Specifically in Genesis 3, 15, which is the first glimmer in all of the Bible of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, if last week, in last week's sermon, we saw the seed of the gospel, we saw the gospel seed. And if that's what we saw last week, well then today we see the very first sprouts of faith, of repentance and the first shadows of the atonement and of redemption. So please stand as we read today's text, Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 through 24. We stand here at Harvest because we want to honor the reading of this infallible, inerrant word of God. This is God's word that we're reading. Verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, And a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is powerful. It is packed with dense truth. And so this morning I pray that you give us the grace to unpack what you're teaching here in these few short verses. Lord, we cannot do that without your help. I pray that you give me a mouth to speak. I pray that you give all of us in here ears to hear. And I pray most of all that you give us hearts to receive the word of God as it is. Not to try to change it. Not to try to make it more palatable for our desires. But to receive your word as it is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. How many of you as, um, who have kids or maybe when you were a kid, um, you did a little science experiment? I've got a little cup here with, um, with dirt in it. You did a little science experiment as kids, maybe in school or maybe even in church, uh, where you put a little bean or maybe a seed into a, a cup of dirt. Have you ever done that, where you put the little seed in there and then you water it? I think the kids have all done this, all right? So you got this little cup of dirt and you put the seed in there. Now the goal, obviously, is to see something sprout and to grow. And I remember doing that as a kid and, and going back day after day to see if there were any signs of life. You go back and you look and you go back and you look and you go back and you look. And the first days, it's not impressive at all. It just seems like a cup of dirt. But down underneath, in the middle of that dirt, the seed was at work. And then one day it would happen. You'd go and you see this little bitty tiny green shoot appearing out from the dirt. Okay, and you'd come running back with excitement. Life was appearing and it was exciting. That's how we should feel about today's passage. Last week was like the seed. The gospel is the seed. 
Genesis 3.15. And it's in the midst of a bunch of dirt. All of these curses. All of this sin. But there it is. And you know that God, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the sin, is at work. So, when you get to today's text, it may not seem like there's very much on the surface here when you read these, these verses. Okay? But it's a glorious passage. It's magnificent. For we see the very first signs of life springing forth from the Genesis 3.15 gospel seed. The verses we just read may seem to you like a, like a, like a plastic cup full of dirt. Not much to look at. It sounds on the surface like just a collection of details clumsily put together to simply tie the story off so we can get to the next section. But there is more going on here than what we perhaps see at first. And if we look closely, we will see the first little signs of life, the first little sprouts of faith and of repentance. And we'll see the first shadows of the atonement and of restoration. So this is no, by no means a passage to simply be overlooked. All of chapter 3 is monumental. And these verses at the end of chapter 3 are no exception. And if we look closely, the first thing we will see this morning is the monumental truth that mankind is saved through believing in God's gracious promise. Mankind is saved through believing in God's gracious promise. In other words, the sprout of redemption that we see here at the very beginning is that of faith. Faith is always necessary for salvation. Ephesians 2, uh, verse 8, that we read earlier in the service. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. Throughout the entire Bible, God's gracious salvation is always received by man through faith. At no time, not at any point in the history of redemption, has mankind ever been saved apart from faith. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. But where do we see faith in today's passage, in today's text? Where do we see faith in this passage of Scripture? Well, we see it in the very first verse, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, you may be saying, um, all right, Pastor Steve, where is the faith in that passage? I don't see it. Well, when we understand the context of what's just transpired, we see the faith. Let's look closely at, at what's happening in the little plastic cup here. And we'll see the signs of life. Think about it. If you were one of the Israelites first hearing Moses teach these words from Genesis chapter 3, then this text, what Adam just said and did, would be the last thing you'd expect to hear. Especially after verse 19. So back up. Remind ourselves, remind ourselves of verse 19. This is the last thing God said to Adam. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In other words, verse 19 is a death sentence. Verse 19 sounds hopeless, dire, devastating. Yet Adam immediately looks at his wife and names her Eve. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the name Eve means life or living. So this is the scene. Adam hears, you will most certainly die. You will return to dust. And he turns and looks at his wife and says, your name will be life. Why does he do that? Why does he name her life? Now, I, I think some of us husbands in here 
would have looked at her and said, your name will be mother of all death, you fruit-eating, weak-willed woman. After all, just a few verses earlier, Adam was blaming her. But something now has changed. Something new has happened in Adam's heart. Matter of fact, I would argue that we can actually see from Adam's first response about his wife to this response here, regeneration. Something has changed in Adam's heart. What's changed? Well, God has intervened and gave them a promise, a promise filled with the hope of life, the hope of salvation, the gospel promise that we'd already mentioned in Genesis 3.15. And upon hearing that promise, Adam believes. He has faith in the good news of Genesis 3.15, despite the bad news of his sinful fall. So we need to be reminded of that promise. So look back at verse 15. I will put enmity between... This is God speaking to the serpent. <coughs> I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It may not have been fully understood by Adam. And certainly the good news of this verse seems to stand in contrast to the, to the bad news of the deserved justice that he had received for breaking God's covenant. But Adam heard God's good news and he believed it. Adam and his wife had believed Satan's words before, but now they were believing God's word. In other words, they were turning from their sin and they were turning to the truth. They were repenting. Now some people will argue that repentance is a work. And thus it's not necessary for salvation. But that's foolishness based upon a misunderstanding of the nature of both faith and uh, repentance. Repentance naturally accompanies faith. It has to. To turn to something or someone in faith is to turn away from something or someone you previously had hoped in. Okay? To go east... I must necessarily stop going west. Repentance has to accompany faith as much as hydrogen must accompany oxygen in order for water to be water. Saving faith doesn't exist without repentance. So we see it here too. Adam and Eve were now refusing to continue to believe the serpentine lies. And thus they were turning from them and they were turning to and trusting in God's promise of life. And in that glorious promise of Genesis 3.15, we see that Adam and Eve, though they had died spiritually upon sinning, they would not immediately die physically, although physical death would eventually come. But instead of immediate physical death, we see that Eve would have offspring, and that one of her offspring, one of her sons, would crush the head of the serpent. And to kill the serpent was to destroy evil and sin and reverse the curse. That was their hope. And so Adam exercised simple faith. He didn't gripe about the future. He didn't whine about the circumstances. He simply saw God's gracious action, heard God's gracious word, and believed. That word from God was itself what awakened, what awakened faith in Adam. It was on the basis of that word, on the basis of that good news, on the basis of that promise from God's mouth that faith sprang to life in Adam's heart. That's how faith comes to a sinner like us, through the gracious word of God, Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? The word of Christ. 
Adam was exercising faith in the promises, faith in what he heard. He believed what he heard and looked forward in faith to a deliverer, the same deliverer that you and I, if we are believers, heard about and looked back, looked back upon in faith, namely the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. So all of Scripture, every single bit of Scripture is designed to point to and stir up faith in Jesus Christ. Even today's passage, Genesis 3, is an example of what Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy 3, 15, when he says that all Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. The Scriptures are able to make you wise. They do the work. The Scriptures awaken your heart so that you'll have faith in Christ. So what God's Word regenerates the heart. God's Word produces the faith in the sinner. That is why we unashamedly will say, the Bible tells me so. We will not accommodate our message and try to hide what it is we believe in in order to pack the pews each Sunday. We believe unashamedly that the scriptures are where the power of God resides, the power for faith, the power for regeneration, and we will proudly and boldly stand on the word of God. The Bible does tell us so, and we believe it. Just as Adam believed the word that he heard in Genesis 3, 15. Now, let's look some more at Adam's faith here. The verb tense here of the word called, when, he, when we read the man called his wife's name Eve, is actually in the prophetic perfect tense, meaning it is as good as done. In other words, Adam had rock-solid confidence that God was going to do through Eve what God had promised he was going to do. It was as good as done. He was certain, though he sees nothing yet. She's not had any children yet. You know, it it would be one thing if he was waiting for her to have the first child, and then he says, okay, now I see this childbearing thing, and and I'm going to believe what God says. But there's no children on the scene yet. He considers her the mother of all living before there is any evidence. That's what faith is. Hebrews 11.1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Adam didn't doubt God's promise that a son would come to deliver mankind from Satan. And thus a pattern now is set up for the rest of scripture. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Hebrews 11 is a chapter dedicated to helping us see that truth. Adam didn't have all the data about exactly who and how this salvation was going to come. But Adam had enough. He knew a son was coming. And this son would receive a venomous blow from Satan. But ultimately the son would prevail and crush the serpent's head. Adam couldn't have known exactly how all of this would transpire. But he knew enough and he believed. And now God would begin through shadows to show Adam and all of Adam's descendants that sin has a serious cost. And it has to be atoned for. That's the next sprout of redemptive revelation we see in this text. Mankind is redeemed by receiving God's costly provision. Mankind is redeemed by receiving God's costly provision. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God's provision here is not merely provision for their physical needs. Yes, they needed better clothing now. You see, due to the curse, the earth would no longer be an easy place in which to live. 
thorns, thistles, probably even climatic, dramatic climate changes happening. And so they would need better clothing. The silly outfit that they had stitched together from fig leaves would not suffice. So God mercifully provides better clothing for them for their physical bodies. But the clothing here, both the leaves that they had crafted and the skins that God now provides, pointed to realities beyond merely the physical. In their sinful state, nakedness represented shame and guilt. And they had tried to cover their shame and their guilt by their own works, grabbing a few leaves off of a fig tree, sewing them together in some ridiculous disguise. But their works were woefully inadequate, and they could not cover their sin. And that's what we saw last week. Mankind cannot cover his own sin. No amount of good works, no amount of good living, no amount of rule-keeping, nothing. Nothing can cover your sin before a holy God who sees all. At least nothing that you can do. And so God now provides man and woman with new coverings. New coverings for their sin and for their shame. And with these coverings, we see God making a statement about the seriousness of sin and the high cost of covering sin. And in these coverings, we see a clear shadow of a greater sacrifice yet to come down the road. I want you to notice that, first of all, God takes the sovereign initiative here and does all the work. It says here, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments. God did it. There's no indication that they took any initiative. Nor is there any indication that they participated in the making of the garments themselves. Only God can cover sin. Only the Lord God can provide satisfactory coverings. And the coverings come at a high cost. They were garments of skins, meaning that death had come to some animal or animals. Adam had taken leaves from an inanimate tree, but God deprives a living Breathing animal of its life. This is the first physical death in creation. And imagine how shocking this would have been to Adam and Eve. I mean, they're not getting these things and going, ooh, look, nice leather. This is, this is nice, suede. That's not how they're reacting. They're, they're, they're horrified. They, some of the very animals that Adam had so lovingly cared for and named have now been slaughtered because of his sin. The consequences of their sin is now staring them in the face. It can now be seen clearly that the wages of sin is death. Adam learns firsthand from God that sin could not be covered by a bunch of leaves, but only through pain and blood. Suffering follows sin. There can be no cheap remedy for sin. Blood is required. Adam sees that for the, up close now for the first time. He sees that for life to come to mankind, the life of another would be required. And again, this pattern is set up for us for the rest of Scripture. Hebrews 9.22 says, and this is a verse that Deemer read earlier, without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. Genesis 3.21 is the earliest shadow of the atonement. This verse we just read in Genesis 3.21 is the earliest shadow of the atonement. The word atonement itself in the Hebrew means to cover. The only way sins are covered is by blood. Leviticus 17.11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement 
by the life. Here in today's text begins the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament. All of the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament scriptures, those before the giving of the law like this one, and like Abel's that we'll see in Genesis 4, and like Noah's that we'll see in Genesis 8, and like Abram's that we see when he receives the covenant in Genesis 15, and like the Passover lamb that was slain by each Hebrew family on the night of the Exodus in Exodus chapter 12. And then all of those blood sacrificial offerings prescribed by the law, the burnt offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the peace offering, all of the sacrifices, all of the bloodshed, all of it pointed to better blood. The blood of Christ poured out for the sins of his people on the cross of Calvary. The Bible, friends, is a very bloody book. I think that's part of the reason some people don't want to claim it. Because it's a very bloody book. And that's a good thing. Because without blood, we're dead. Jesus would come to make final atonement by shedding his perfect blood, sinless blood, to provide the full and final covering for our sin. His blood is necessary for us to be redeemed from our sin and for our sins to be forgiven. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. His blood is necessary for our hearts to be cleansed from the stain of sin. 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. His blood is necessary for us to be ransomed from our slavery to sin. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying... Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. His blood is necessary for peace with God to be restored. Colossians 1.20 teaches us that he reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. His blood is necessary for us to be brought into God's family, Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus is necessary for every single aspect of our salvation. Yes, Jesus came to shed his perfect spotless blood because only perfect spotless blood could deal with the immense gravity of our sin against a holy and just God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is the word that John the Baptist spoke when he saw Jesus walking by. The lamb that came to be slaughtered. So already here in Genesis chapter 3, the picture of Christ is taking shape. It's coming into focus. We're looking into this little cup here and we're seeing the signs of life. We're seeing the gospel. Already from Genesis 3, we see the need for faith in God's promised deliverer and that blood must be shed in order for sin to be forgiven. And since we already know, since we already know, and Adam would have already known from Genesis 3.15, that the heel of the deliverer will be struck, it's quite clear that the deliverer will shed his own blood, and in doing so, he will atone for the sins of his people, and at the same time, through the same act, he will crush the head of the serpent. Revelation speaks of this completion, this consummation of Satan's final defeat. In verse 12 of chapter, chapter 12, verse 9, we read this. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, 
now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Jesus' blood covering not only is a covering to remove our guilt and the power of sin, but also it's a covering that gives us something. It gives us his righteousness. The animal skins of Adam and Eve pointed to being dressed in something that would make them uh, acceptable before God. It pointed to being dressed in God's own righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will rejoice, uh, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Revelation 7.14 speaks of the believers who are coming before the Lamb. It says they've, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 19.8 said it was granted for her, the church, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the righteous deeds of the saints, friends, are only possible through the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. So our sinful nakedness is covered by Christ's righteousness. So Jesus, through his shed blood, covers our sin and dresses us for glory. This is what all this points to. These first two little verses of this passage. This is what this cup of dirt has in it. Instead, we see, we, instead of a cup of dirt, we see life sprouting up from that gospel seed. Mankind is saved through believing in God's gracious promise. Mankind is redeemed by receiving God's costly provision. And the last thing I want to see in today's text is simply this. Mankind is preserved by receiving God's merciful protection. It may seem odd to us that after this grace that God has shown to Adam, uh, Adam's faith that he has in the promise and the atoning grace shown through the animal skins, that now Adam and Eve have to be kicked out of the garden. They have to be exiled. But there's grace in the exile. There is. Verse 22. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now what do we make of this verse? Was Satan right? The moment you eat of the tree, you're going to be like God. Was Satan right? Did man become like God? Is that what this means? Well, you got to remember that man is already like God in the sense that he was created in the image of God. But Satan promised autonomy beyond just imaging God. And he told man that he could be God. And that was a lie. So what's God talking about here when he says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. The question here is not one of essence. God is, his knowledge of good and evil is a knowledge outside of himself. But man now knows good and evil experientially. God knows, God's knowledge of good and evil is therefore a holy knowledge, a pure knowledge. But man's knowledge of good and evil is a corrupted and sinful knowledge. So in one sense, man did become more like God, but also he became less like God. Man now, unlike God, knows evil experientially. And now, unlike God, he will desire evil. Man is anything but divine. He is now sinful to the core, totally depraved. So what God does next is actually a very, very gracious act. Verse 22. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And just sort of cuts off. We don't actually have the, the, the rest of God's sentence. It's almost as if to say, 
you don't even know what's going to happen if man does that. So to keep him from doing it, we're going to put him out of the garden. This is not a good thing for man to live forever physically while being spiritually dead. This would really be the walking dead. God graciously does not allow man to exist forever physically in his sinful, rebellious state as a wicked, fallen, depraved sinner. That would be, that would be hell. Existing eternally in sinful rebellion against God is the essence of hell. God has a new and ultimately better path to life, a new means of partaking of the tree of life, and this new path no longer goes through the garden. All men who die spiritually must be reborn spiritually, and therefore all men must die physically in order to be reborn physically. We don't want to live forever in these sinful fallen bodies with these sinful minds. I don't. Instead, we long, our bodies, our spirits long for for imperishable bodies, imperishable minds. Paul says as much in Romans 7, verse 24, when he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He doesn't want to be in this body for the rest of his life, struggling against, for, for all eternity, struggling against sin. He wants deliverance. His answer comes in the next verse. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8.23 says that we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's the new life we've been given spiritually. Groan inwardly as we, eagerly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. That's the resurrected new bodies that we're longing for. And the path to those bodies does not go through the garden but through the grave. So God graciously ejects man from the garden And sets a guard to keep man from the tree of life. Verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So Adam still had a mandate to work the ground. Verse 24. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so Adam is left with hopeful longing for redemption for someday, for his body to be redeemed, to be, for that redemption to be finally and fully realized. So that he can once again be with God like he was in the garden prior to sin. And we see here again, as I've mentioned already today, a pattern being established for the rest of Scripture. You see, sin has separated us from our God. For it was God's design to dwell among his people. The garden was the first temple, God dwelling amongst his people. But Isaiah 59, 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. And so all throughout the Old Testament, to use Deemer's phrase that he used a few weeks back, we see echoes of Eden. We see the echoes of this separation between man and God. We sin, we see that man sins over and over again, causing man to be removed from God's presence. Here we have Adam and Eve, God's people being removed from God's place because they refuse to live under God's rule. Remember our definition of of the kingdom. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And here we have God's people being ejected from God's place because they refuse to submit to God's rule. And we see that same thing happen thousands of years later with the people of Israel. God's people ejected from God's place, the promised land, because they refuse to live under God's rule. Also, We see echoes of Eden, as Deemer mentioned earlier, in the tabernacle and the temple. They both had designs to make us remember the Garden of Eden. And at the entrance of both, 
the, the entrance of both, I should say, faced east. Just as the entrance of the Garden of Eden faced east. So the entrance of each faced east. And both the tabernacle and the temple had a veil between the Holy of Holies and the people. They had cherubim embroidered on them, reminding the people of God that they no longer had access to God due to their sin. Only once a year could the high priest enter the Holy of Holies before the, on the day of, of Yom Kippur, the, the, the day of atonement. He would enter to offer the blood of the sacrifice before the mercy seat, which sat on the Ark of the Covenant. And that mercy seat also, by the way, featured cherubim on it. On that lid of the ark. And you know what that lid of the ark was called? It's called the atonement cover. We see the echoes of Eden all throughout the scriptures. So everything we see here in Genesis 3 is echoed in the rest of the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. And all that we see here foreshadows the work of Christ. For Jesus would come as the new tabernacle, as the new temple, and as the final high priest. And he would make the final sacrifice with his own blood. And he would enter into the heavenly holy of holies to make the final atonement for all of his people. We read earlier in the service Hebrews 9, 11, and we don't, 11 through 14, we don't need to read it again. But we see it, saw in that text that Jesus was our high priest and he went in with superior blood. Blood that was better than that of bulls and goats. That's what we will be remembering here in just a few minutes. That superior blood. But I'm going to read for you a passage later on in Hebrews, Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised... Is faithful. So now, as believers in the new covenant, do we have access to God? Absolutely. Through Jesus Christ, we can come before the throne of grace with confidence. But this access to God is an already not yet reality. We have access to the Father now because the atoning work of the Son is done, but the fullness of our access to God is yet to come. That will come when we are freed from these bodies of death and when this creation is finally and fully made new. And that will happen. At the return of Christ, when he brings to completion what he had accomplished on the cross, when he brings the new heavens and the new earth. And on that day, we will see what John the Apostle saw way in advance. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's where it's all going. That's what this is all about. And so in Revelation 22, we read that in this new city, there's a tree. It's the tree of life. The tree they don't have access to here. Adam and Eve are being prevented from here. One day, all of God's people will have access to paradise restored. So with me, I think you could all agree that we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. If you're a Christian here today and if you put your faith in Christ, these things are certain for you. Rejoice, for you have access to the Father now, but not not yet like you will then. 
So let these words of future grace stir you up to love and good works. Let the signs of faith and the redemption seen in the, in the dirt of the curse stir you up to awe at the grand story of the Bible and the saving work of our God. And if you're here this morning and you've never placed your hope in Jesus Christ, I simply beg you to turn from your sin and put your hope in the one who brings life. Your sin is costly. And Christ went to the cross to take the debt of sinners like you and me. Oh, friend, you may not understand all that I've said here today, but like Adam, hear the promise of God, the promise that God gave to graciously save sinners through the Deliverer, who is Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him, put all your hope in him, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we, in a few minutes here, will drink of the cup, and eat the bread that we will we will remember the high cost of sin it couldn't just be swept under the rug death had to come there had to be a substitute but as we taste the fruit of the vine that's in this cup May we also rejoice that Jesus paid the price for us. He paid it all. He shed his blood so that our blood wouldn't be shed. He stood in our place. He allowed his body to be broken. But because he had no sin, he rose again and took us with him. We have resurrection life already with renewed hearts. And he's got bodies ready for us as well so that one day we with renewed bodies and renewed hearts will live in a renewed earth in a place that's better than Eden in the presence of our God forever and ever as he dwells with us and we look forward to that day father we hold on to those promises that's future grace right there help us hold on to that especially during times of challenge and difficulty. So God, we thank you, we praise you. Lord, may our participation in the supper now be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.